Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. And it's finally happened. The re-rank, the mid-season re-rank of the top 100 and the team top 30 prospects list. I know you guys uh, not going to be able, you're not going to be able to answer your favorite question for a while. When will the list be out? When will the list be out? They're out. Um, you know, this year, obviously, in so many ways, has been so different. And and again, you know, everything that's going on has affected this as well. And first, before we get into talking about uh, the, the details of the list and who ranks where, let's talk a little bit about how this was different than our midseason re-rank um, in, a, in a typical year. Well, I mean, it was, you know, a lot different just because of the reality of the coronavirus. I mean, usually... I'd say we spend the better part of a month working on all of our top 30 lists and the top 100 because you have guys, you have lots of guys who graduate, you have guys who get better, you have guys who get worse, you have guys who kind of come out of nowhere, you know, then you have the draft guys come in, you have your July 2 guys, we added, you know, Jason Dominguez of the Yankees to our midseason list last year, and this year, outside of the draft, you really didn't have any of that, I mean, I was thinking about it i mean and basically since we did our you know first 2020 list at the beginning of the year you know we had about three weeks of spring training games you know whatever you could glean from summer camp and to this point about you know a little less than two weeks of big league action you know there's not really anything there that's you know there's a lot more noise than there is you know real information there I, i can't get excited about you know, thinking a guy is radically different just because he, you know, pitched well in, in the Cactus League, you know, three times. So it was kind of a very odd re-rank where essentially all we did was figure out, okay, which of the draft guys need to go on the list and where. And then we cut some guys off the bottom of the list and boom, we were done. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. it, uh, it it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we love sort of shaking up the list. I mean, think about it. the last, what, couple of years we were even doing the sort of in season, moving guys up and down based on performance. And we weren't able to do that at all, which was very strange uh, to say the least. And I, and I agree with Jim. I mean, we weren't going to, you know, what move Jared Kelnick up because he hit some homers in summer camp and then a couple more in alternate camp. I'm sure that'd be tempting, but it's just not enough to, to make that, worthwhile so you know i think that this was the best we could do under the circumstances you know, jason as you sort of intimated the i think the best part of this is that we won't get questions anymore on 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 the twitter machine as to when when we would be updating the list i, I think we probably had about a, a five or six week straight streak right jim of when asking for inbox questions getting at least when will the list be updated so now the lists have been updated, so people will have to come up with other questions for us. And the, the answer to that question is, is always the same, right? It's we update the lists after the draft signing deadline once all the players have officially been signed and we know who has signed and who has not this year. Obviously, everyone, all 160 players who drafted were signed, but that's the timeline on it, and that's, uh, that's how we do it each year. Um, so 
because there have been so few games played to this point, um, only one player from the preseason top 100 list uh, graduated uh, between the time that we put that out back in January and this midseason list, and that was Mitch Keller. So not a lot of room for new players to be added due to graduation. I think we, we talked a little bit before the podcast and um, what did we say? Generally, we would have had approximately 20 prospects graduate off the list. Yeah, and it seems like that number keeps getting larger Again, I mean, this isn't a typical year, but your teams have been going to younger players earlier. But yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of upheaval. And, <laughs> you know, it was weird. I wrote the overview story for the top 100. And it's like the top 10s basically, I mean, not basically, it is the same top 10 from the beginning of the season, except we, you know, put Spencer Torkelson, number one pick of the draft in there. It's, uh, you know, in a typical year, you know, we might have had. Gavin Lux probably would have graduated. Luis Robert would have probably graduated. Mackenzie Gore might have been up and graduated. Joe Adele might have been up and graduated. Nate Pearson probably would have graduated. Even Casey Mize might have come up and graduated. You know, this year, obviously, none of that stuff happened. So Spencer Torkelson, you mentioned, entered the top 10 list overall. He's He's number seven on the list. Looking back at some previous number one overall draft picks and where they debuted in the lists. Interesting to see Torkelson as high as he is. Uh, when you look back over the past several years, last year, Adley Rutschman actually debuted a spot higher than Torkelson uh, at number six overall. But the difference there being that this year, had it been a normal year and we would have been four months into the season, uh, there's a good chance that two, three, maybe even four of the players ahead of Torkelson in the top 10 would have graduated. He could have actually debuted if everything had, had broken right. He could have debuted at number three overall on the list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you, you know, go with the assumption, you know, you know, that, Lux and Robert uh, and Adele and maybe Gore, right? Those are the four ahead of him. You know, could could have graduated. Sure, I, I could see that happening. Certainly, Lux and Robert, and I think Adele, Gore. You know, well, we have no way of knowing, but you know, he would be the one that I you know we wouldn't know about. But I think there's a good chance. So yeah, I think it, he certainly could have been as high as number three you know, on, on, on the list, uh, debuting, which, you know, going back over the years, uh, would have been a, would have been a high mark for our midseason re-rank. Yeah. So looking back a little further, uh, 2018, number one overall pick Casey Mize debuted at number 20 in 2017, Royce Lewis debuted at number 31. Uh, he was actually not the top ranked draft prospect that year. And, probably contributed a little bit to the lower ranking. Mickey Moniak in 2016 entered the list at number 34. In 2015, Dansby Swanson debuted at number 12 on the top 100 list. Uh, Brendan Rogers, who we had ranked uh, ahead of Swanson on the draft list, was ranked a spot higher than Swanson in the midseason top 100. 2014, Brady Aiken, uh, of course, 
did not sign and so was not on the midseason top 100 list. And then in 2013, Mark Appel was number 23. So a bit of a trend in the past few years with these number one overall picks being ranked higher and higher over the past, over the course of the past five years. Does that say anything about the players that have been picked in the past few years and their, how you guys view them in, in terms of their overall prospect status, or maybe they're talking about a few college guys here, but their overall preparedness. And I, you know, I know Torkelson, Jim, you talked, uh, you've talked a lot about how scouts have talked about him being, perhaps the most major league ready hitting prospect in quite some time. Um, how does all that factor into what we're seeing here with this trend? Yeah, you know, I, I think getting to the first part of that question, I think it's more just the way we look at prospects. I mean, I, I think as we've done this long, I mean, there used to be a tendency, I, I felt when I talked to people in baseball and you talk about new play, you know, newcomers, whereas the draft international, they're like, oh, you know, the guy hasn't played much yet or he hasn't done much yet. Like, I, I can remember having this conversation going back to Mark Pryor. And it's like, well, if, you know, Mark Pryor's supposed to be the best prospect and college pitching prospect ever, we should probably reflect that. And, and I just think as I've done this longer, I don't know if Jonathan feels the same way. Like, you know, when you have a guy like, say, Adley Rutschman last year, who's, you know, up there, you know, as good as any, you know, in my mind, as good as any catching prospect come out of the draft since I've been doing this, then instead of saying, well, you know, Adley really hasn't played pro ball, so we got to wait for him to do stuff. No, let's reflect how good we think he is. So I, I think there's, there's been that. And, you know, when Torkelson was kind of in that same mix, you know, we talked about how, you know, Torkelson, you know, I, I feel like I've used this line about a hundred times, but I mean, might be the best all around offensive performer to come out of the draft since Mark Teixeira back in, in 2001. So again, if we feel that way and that's what the industry is telling us, yeah, we're not going to get to see him in a pro game till next year, but we could still project out that like this guy's really, really good. Let's not sandbag him at all because he hasn't played yet. So I, I mean, what do you think, Jonathan? I mean, have you become more liberal in that regard, do you think? It's funny because one thing that I feel like I worry about is that we can be too draft-centric. You know, part of it is just because we spend so much time working on the draft, but it's something I'm always aware of that our, our lists are too draft-heavy in general and don't include enough international prospects. So I try to, to weigh that now. You know, this year, obviously, we're just slotting in draft guys, but one of the things I'm always worried about. And I think initially when, you know, over the last couple of years, if I were to go back and look at how I personally voted on where to put draft guys, I probably was lower. I'm, I'm guessing I probably didn't have Rushman quite as high when we first voted. Now, looking back, I, that was foolish for the reasons I think you laid out. I think that makes a lot of sense actually. But, uh, you know, so I, I think there's a little draft bias probably still in. And I think that there's just the fact that these players are coming out of the amateur ranks m much more prepared. Uh, and, and so what used to be a larger learning curve to adjust to the pro game doesn't seem to exist as much. And it's worked out that the last couple of years it's been, it's been college guys, but I think even the high school players, because they've had the chance to face higher levels of competition more, more consistently than they used to years ago, uh, hit the ground running. You know, you see fewer and fewer high school guys out of the draft 
who aren't ready to go to full season ball uh, at the start of their first full season. Now this year, who knows, you know, so you can't even take the fact that we're not going to, you know, see any of these players until next year into account when you're, when you're ranking. But I do think that the gap between amateur baseball and professional baseball has, has closed considerably. And that, at least for me, sort of has contributed to pushing some of these guys up the list, uh, you know, a, a little more, you know, you could say a little more aggressively, but it's probably fair placement for them based on what they're able to do right out of the gate. And I think it's a great point, Jonathan, and it's going to become more important with, you know, it seems inevitable, nothing's official yet, that the minors are going to get contracted to some extent, um, at least 120 teams, although there's now some thought that it could be as few as 90. Um, and, you know, I'm just looking, you know, the first high school guys drafted in this year's draft are perfect examples of what you're talking about. Robert Hassel, very advanced hitter. Zach Veen, very advanced hitter. They don't get to play this year because of the coronavirus. Um, and But they still might be able to handle making a jump. You know, there, there's not going to be a short season team next year. Those guys might be able to handle making the jump to low A for their pro debuts next spring if, if things are back to normal. All right, so let's look at some of the other uh, – 2020 draft picks who have made the top 100 prospects list. There are 13 this year, which is um, the most we've had on a list since 2016, but not by much. This is pretty standard. Last year, there were 12 2019 draft picks on the list. In 2018, there were 10 draft picks on the list. In 2017, there were 11. And in 2016, there were 14. One thing I wanted you guys to talk about a little bit is the fact that we get questions sometimes about why, if this player was ranked ahead of this player on the draft top 200 prospects list, is why are those players flip-flop now on the top 100 prospects list? And I think uh, that may be the case with a few of the players here. What can you guys say about that? Well, I, I think there's a couple things. <sighs> There's there's different ways to evaluate what the industry thinks of players. You know, we try to do that with the top 200 when we set it up. But I think you also can look at where players are drafted and how much bonus money they receive as well. You know, and, and the thing is too. I mean, none of these things are ever you know locked in stone. I mean, yes, Torkelson was the number one prospect. That was pretty clear. And I, I think you know we all felt like Austin Martin was number two you know, on the pipeline team. And then, you know, whatever order, Asa Lacey, Emerson Hancock, Nick Gonzalez were probably three, four, five. And after that, you could shuffle the order a little bit. You know, Max Meyer was a guy who we had ranked, I think, ninth on the draft top 200. He's sixth among draft guys on the top 100, but he was also the third overall pick. You know, Heston Kerstad was 10th on the overall top 200 and was drafted second. And we have him eighth among the top 200 guys. We talk about this too. It's not always maybe apparent, but, you know, there are tiers. And like I said, I mean, I, I thought Torkelson was a clear number one this year. I think Martin was pretty strong number two. Lacey maybe on his heels. Lacey Hancock Gonzalez was at three, four, five. And then six through, through ten, you know, Kerstad, Veen, Max Meyer, Garrett Mitchell, Reed Detmers. You could probably put those guys in any order that you wanted, you know, you, you if you talk to five different teams, you might get five different orders on those guys. So I, I like being, I guess I'd look at it as adaptable rather than saying, Hey, we're locked in. Cause this is how we ranked the guys based, you know, in April. I mean, nothing can 
changed because teams weren't playing. So this has to be our rankings in July. I mean, we even had a couple instances where I think it makes more sense to put guys, not necessarily first round picks, those were pretty easy, but, you know, later round picks, putting guys where you think they belong on the organization top 30s rather than saying, oh, well, this guy's an overall 45 on the draft list, so we've got to keep him there and put him higher on the draft list or lower than we think he belongs. Um, You know, and I I think, you know, the other answer, too, is you get more information, you know, talking to teams, you know, we got more information after we set the list, you know, we continue to talk to teams. It's just, the list was locked in place. Yeah. And I think, you know, it would be arrogant of us to say that, well, our draft order is right. So we have to, we have to be beholden to that. I think, yes, guys go in different orders in the draft, sometimes because of signability, you know, sometimes a deal is struck, you know, Heston Kerstad was not, the the second best player in the draft uh you know but he was really good and the Orioles saved a bunch of money but at the same time I do think we have to look at where guys went in the draft and and get a sense of where the industry thought a guy belonged when push comes came to shove in terms of where where he went uh and and that can play with the order I think you know Garrett Mitchell is probably uh, the, the best example of that, you know, and we've talked about him a lot, pure tools wise, he was as good as an offensive player as it was in, in the draft. Uh, but there were enough question marks that pushed him down, you know, further in, in the first round than we thought. And he was a hard guy to place when we were doing our mock drafts anyway, uh, because of those question marks. And, you know, I think he went where he went for, for a reason it wasn't you know that he priced himself out or or anything like that so i think we need to take those kinds of things into account as well when we're deciding where guys where guys belong compared to where we had them ranked on our draft list and honestly when we when we I mean every year when we do the midseason list jason i always when we do you know we we mash all our votes together this year was different we were only dealing with the draft guys but I always kind of do a hybrid, not ranking, but a combination of where we had the guys ranked and where they got drafted, sometimes adjust a little bit if the guy got paid well over slot to address some of that. And then we and then we actually look at our list and say, hey, you know, this guy might look a little bit out of place based on that and we adjust. But yeah, we're, we're we try to be cognizant of that every year. That is how the sausage is made. Let's talk a little bit about the team breakdown of the top 100 prospects list. Uh, But before we do that, a word from our sponsor. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves saying things like I lost my mojo or we avoid it altogether with excuses like I had a long day at work or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about with a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication. It's simple safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. 
Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. All right, guys. So looking at the way this list breaks down in terms of the teams who have the most players on the list, two teams with six players each on the top 100, the Padres and the Marlins, and they are followed by the Tigers, Mariners, Braves, and Dodgers. And, you know, I guess you say no surprises here, which is based largely on the fact that there can't be that many surprises because the list hasn't changed that much since the preseason list. But for the most part, these are teams that we've seen with a lot of top 100 prospects and with strong farm systems over the past several years. I guess that that probably you can say that about the Padres, Braves and Dodgers, whereas the Marlins, Tigers and Mariners, the other three teams in that list farm systems that have been on the rise over the past few years. Well, sure. And, you know, if you look at those teams, they all have picked high in the draft the last couple of years. I think, you know, it's interesting that the, you know, what's I so the Braves and Dodgers did not add draftees to the top 100. And the Braves first round picture at Schuster didn't even crack their top 10. You know, the Padres and the Marlins, well, actually, the Padres, Marlins, Tigers, and Mariners, all their first-round picks all are are all on the top 100 now. So they added a, they added a player. The Braves and Dodgers sort of, uh, as you mentioned, like not much has changed. You said Mitch Keller is the only top 100 guy who graduated before we, we launched this new list. Uh, they didn't add a top 100 guy now. They just had that that richness there while the other teams were able to continue to add, you know, which is what that's what the draft is supposed to do. And, and, you know, now the question is, will those teams eventually build winners at the at the big league level? Uh, you know, the Dodgers are almost an anomaly because they're good every year and their farm system is always good. But you, you look at the Braves, who were, were not good and had a lot of draft picks and made trades for prospects and rebuilt and turned things around. That's exactly where the other teams that are on this list want to get to. Um, and looked like that they're they're heading in that direction. I think the Tigers are the ones that sort of jump out as the sudden, but you know they had the they've had the number one pick. Um, you know, so they added Casey Mize, and now they added Spencer Torkelson. So they, they've been able to add some really high end talent over the last few years. You know, all of whom are in, in the top 100 currently. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you embrace the rebuilding process and you go all in on rebuilding, you know, you you can it's a lot easier to shoot up the rankings than when you're trying to win. You mentioned the, the Tigers, Jonathan. I mean, their, their four best prospects are all top 10 picks in the last few drafts, you know, in Torkelson, Riley Green, Casey Mize, and Matt Manning. You know, the, the Mariners and, and the Marlins kind of made very abrupt, uh, you know, entries after having kind of mediocre farm systems, you know, jumping up our rankings. You know, Jerry Depoto, who was – you know, all in to win was all in to rebuild. And then they trade for Jared Kelnick and they trade for Justin Dunn and Jake Fraley and other guys. And so instead of trading away prospects they're bringing guys in, you know, you look at the Marlins who, 
you know, they, they still have a long way to go, but when they, when they sold the team, I mean, it was a bad, you know, a bad farm system. And then they went and dismantled the big league team and traded guys for prospects. And they've added not just draft picks, but Sixto Sanchez and Jazz Chisholm and Jesus Sanchez and Luan Diaz. I mean, that's, that's four of their top eight prospects right there are, are guys they traded for as well as, you know, Monty Harrison and Monty Harrison and Nick Neidert are two more guys. You know, they, they just made a bunch of trades and, and bolstered the farm system that way. So, but yeah, it's uh, getting back to the first part of what you said again, because it's such a strange year. You know, there are years where it's kind of a surprise. Like we, we, we do our list, you know, and Mike and, and Jonathan and I vote and we combine together and we get feedback and then you're like, whoa, you know, how the Marlins get six guys on here. <laughs> but this year it was kind of like, well, kind of saw that coming because they had a bunch of guys to begin with and, and then they signed Max Meyer. So one kind of quick and dirty way that we like to, uh, look at the top 100 lists and how the teams are represented is to uh, apply prospect points, what, we, what we've called prospect points, and uh, by no means a uh, foolproof system here. Um, but just to give you a general idea of uh, where these teams' players rank on the list rather than just looking at the overall number of players on the list, uh, give 100 points to the number one ranked prospect, 99 to number two, and, and on down. The Tigers lead the way this year in terms of prospect points with 380, followed by the Padres at 339, the Mariners at 329. So there are three of the teams that we already mentioned of having the uh, among the most players on the list. White Sox are number four, uh, Braves number five, Rays number six, and then the rest of the top 10 is rounded out by the Marlins, Dodgers, Royals, and Orioles. We'll see how our ranking of the farm systems plays out here uh, about a month from now. Um, we would normally do that right around this time, uh, but we're going to hold off on that because of the later trade deadline, and we want these rankings to reflect any trades that could occur. So, um, Tigers, Padres, Mariners, White Sox, and Braves, one, two, three, four, five, in terms of prospect points. How do you see those teams ranking in the, uh, in the farm system rankings? Is it going to be pretty similar to that? Are those the top five teams in your mind? Is it too early, too early to say? Um, I haven't tried to break it down, but like the one that's kind of the outlier there is the White Sox because they have four of the top 40 prospects in baseball and then their draft falls off. I mean, their, their depth falls off pretty quickly outside of a couple guys they took in this year's draft. And it's quite possible that when we, when we update the farm system rankings in a month or so, if Luis Robert graduates, that's 98 prospect points that are gone because he's number three. And there's also a possibility that if Nick Madrigal plays every day and graduates, which I, I guess is possible he could have enough at bats then, you know, I mean, there's another 60 or so prospect points, too. So, you know, I think those other teams are, are pretty good bets to rank fairly high. I want to say coming into the season, we had, what, the Tigers fifth, Padres second, Mariners ninth, White Sox were 11th, Braves were were eighth. You know, it, it probably depends on, on some graduations. I I'll be curious to see how... The Tigers stack up, Jonathan, because they've got 
two of the top 10 prospects in baseball now and Spencer Torkelson and Casey Mize who aren't going to graduate and they're building up some depth as well. I like the draft they had. They added a lot of position players to the pitching depth they had. And I wonder if the, you know, how close to number one, the Tigers might move when, when all is said and done. Yeah, I think, and I haven't, I haven't really looked at it that closely yet either, but I, I do think that they, they were on the, they had an up arrow next to their name, obviously what they were, 10th preseason in 2019 and then 6th midseason and 5th preseason this year and they just added Spencer Torkelson so uh, you know they're obviously going to move up and you know and and have added depth as well so I, I think I think that's a good call the one I guess I'm like slightly you know just looking at the uh prospect points is the Royals who we had at 17th preseason so they're the ones i'd have to to take a look at obviously they're reaping some of the benefits of their farm system brady singer's been up you know all those pitchers that they took uh, um chris bubich has been up um and obviously bobby witt jr is is their top prospect and gives them uh a whole lot of, of points and, and then you know then they went and, and added uh asa lacy so I, I think that I'm curious to see how much they get they get pushed up. You know that that was one of the teams that was in that top ten for prospect points, and I'm like I'm not a hundred percent sure where they're going to land. I think they move up, but I don't know that they move from 17th into the top ten. I'll have to I'll have to take a closer look. But that was the one that I kind of looked at out that surprised me compared to our our preseason organization rankings just a little bit. Yeah, they went from having three top 100 prospects to four with the addition of Asa Lacey. And you mentioned Witt being their highest ranked prospect at number 11 overall. And then Lacey at 34, Singer at 65, and Daniel Lynch at 67. And three pitchers there in the top 100. And you know, I, I think this is, I think the Royals to me are one of the most interesting farm systems in terms of the pitching that the, really the, the big league ready or near big league ready pitching that they, that they have. All right. So looking at the list uh, in total, every, every team has at least one top 100 prospect. Uh, that's just the second time that that's happened on any of our lists, preseason or midseason, since 2015. I believe it's only the third time since 2013. Any, any other takeaways from either of you guys from, from the list before we move on? Not, not to, um, I mean, usually there would be something, but again, it's just such an odd year because we didn't, you, you didn't move anybody around. You just lopped some guys off the bottom of the list. Um, so no, I mean it was it, it, it other than it was a very it just felt very odd how little work was involved updating the list this year. I I, I don't have any great takeaway in terms of you know trends we're seeing or, or or anything like that. Yeah, I agree with that for the most part. I think there were a handful of guys that based on that small sample size of spring training or summer camp or things we had heard, you know, uh, that, oh, I could see that guy having worked his way into a top 100 list had this been a normal season, you know, there, and conversely, 
eh, maybe this guy really isn't a top 100 guy anymore, but he's, he's still on there because we didn't have enough information to do that. I'll be curious to see, you know, assuming we're back to some semblance of normal next year, whether or not those sort of hunches we had that we decided that we were not going to act on, whether we were, we were right or, you know, to be cautious or we were right in our hunch that, oh, maybe that guy should be, should be a top 100 guy. Was there any temptation to move Robert ahead of Lux just based on the summer camp that, that Robert had and then his first couple weeks in the big leagues and, you know, seemingly right off the bat, living up to all the expectations, seeing the stat cast data on him, which we had not really seen before and seeing just how hard he hits the ball, just how fast he really is. Like you knew these things generally speaking, but now to have the stats to back that up and to see him perform right off the bat, was there any temptation there? Not for me. I mean, one, the summer camp stuff's great to watch, but like, how do you read into summer camp? Like, you know, it's hard enough to read into spring training. I mean, summer camp, you're just seeing glimpses here and there. I mean, I knew he had, I mean, to be honest, I mean, Jonathan will probably second this. The coming out party for Luis Robert was in the fall league in the second half of the fall league in 2018. And we both saw a lot of him. We used, or I used the same lines over and over or some of my lines over and over his combination of bat speed and foot speed was clearly better than everybody else's in the league. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. So no, I mean, like, again, we could have done that, but like, where do you draw the line? Like, you know, and I mean, is it really moving a guy from two to three going to make that much of a difference? Uh, You know I mean? Nate Pearson looked really good in his pro in his big league debut. Do we put him ahead of Casey Mize because of that? I I just, I kind of liked what we agreed with, which was there just isn't enough to go on even spring training a guy who tears up in spring training is he facing big leaguers is he facing big leaguers who are at the top of their game or working their way back into shape a little bit is he facing you know double a guys in the seventh inning um yeah you know i don't even think you can read that much into that stuff i i think the only real changes we made to the orders jonathan if i'm not mistaken and i think you mentioned this and i was like you know that's a good idea is you know when you're doing these lists now, honestly, at the end of the list, there's not really much of a difference in most cases between number 26 and number 30. I mean, you put them in an order, you take the time to line them up, but there's also guys you want to try to make sure you have on the list. And I, I think it was you, Jonathan, who got, I don't know if it was your idea or you got feedback from a team. And I had it from a couple of my teams who were like, oh, I wouldn't drop so-and-so off the list. So on a couple of my lists, I may have dropped number 27 and saved number 28 to keep him on the list you know, if there was some late feedback, but other than that, I just, I just didn't see, you know, Oh, so-and-so's off to a, a slow start in the big leagues. Let's knock him down five spots. I just don't think there's enough to go on. It just was too much of a, of a Pandora's box. I think, uh, you know, could you make an argument that Robert belongs ahead of Gavin Lux? Sure. You could make that argument. Hey, if you want to make an argument, he belongs ahead of Wander Franco. You could right now. Sure. But that's that's only because we're seeing him play right now, um, you know, out of the out of the gate while the other two are are in alternate camps getting work in. And, you know, we could probably get updates on them, but it just it just would have caused more problems than not. Uh, and again, with not enough sample size, we've all seen 
plenty of times where phenoms prospects come up and they're set the world on fire for for the start of a of a career and then they they sort of come back to earth or they struggle or whatever it is now i don't I don't know that Luis Robert's going to do that. I think he has every chance to be a superstar. That's why we have him ranked as high as we do. But it, it just uh, it would have been difficult to figure out what to do other than what Jim said, which is sort of not drop guys off the end of the list in the order that they were ranked necessarily if there was a, a good reason to to keep a guy who may, maybe a guy who had a little more high ceiling in some cases. I think I had one or two where a guy had proven – you know, in spring training, summer camp that he was just about, you know, in a much better position to contribute than anyone anticipated or added a new pitch or whatever it is. So that was the only, only place where we were sort of creative outside of slotting the draft guys in. All right. So let's, let's talk uh, some more about some very highly rated prospects who have been called up recently. Uh, Before we do that though, another word from sponsor. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. All right, guys. Uh, we have had the fortune of, of uh, the good fortune of having several uh, elite prospects called up over the past uh, week or so. Um, you mentioned Nate Pearson's debut, Jim, and he was quite impressive. Uh, Joe Adele was just called up. Uh, and those guys are both top 10 overall prospects in baseball, Nate Pearson, number nine, Joe Adele, number six, and then a couple other top 100 guys who've been called up recently and uh, White Sox calling up second baseman, Nick Madrigal and D-backs calling up catcher slash outfielder Dalton Varsho. Pearson, you know, I think everybody was looking forward to that debut and, you know, Heard all about his velocity and the fact that he had hit 103 in the was the Futures game or the Fall Stars game, um, but everybody was was you know wanting to see just how hard this guy throws. And then the velocity wasn't really there; uh, didn't hit triple digits, um, but was very effective. Five shutout innings. What did you guys think about what you saw there? He looked good, and he he actually was up to 104 in that Fall Stars game. Uh, Pete Alonso homered off a 103 mile an hour pitch. It was quite the uh, the stat cast night uh, when we were when we were at that game. But um, no, I mean I think he you know I think he even admitted he was kind of nervous early. But you know five shutout innings, uh, you know fastball. I, I think he was up to 98 or 99. I want to say it was against Carter Keboom. Um, like he froze him with a 98 or 99 mile an hour fastball. Had a mid 80s slider. Um, 
you had some, you know, got a number of swings and misses, you know, unfortunately because of the, you know, scheduling issues with various teams having, you know, positive tests, you know, his second start, you know, hasn't happened yet. We didn't get to see him again, but I think he's scheduled to pitch again on, uh, on Thursday. So we'll get another outing. I, I thought it was, I mean, again, it's one outing. You don't want to read too much into it, but he kind of looked like Nate Pearson to me without, you know, reaching triple digits, but he, he, he showed plenty of arm strength. Well, I mean, one of the things that's always, you know, and I think we talked about this last week is that he's not just an arm strength guy. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, well, you know, he's didn't have his best stuff. He was only throwing 98, but the point being is that his feel for his stuff and his ability to command his stuff is what makes him, you know, a top 10 prospect along with the arm strength and the premium velocity, you know, so he doesn't have to be throwing 103 to get guys out. Um, he could probably be throwing mid nineties and he's got the array of stuff to, to be a very successful big league starter. Uh, it's a special combination of, of command and that kind of high octane stuff that's you know what makes him so exciting. So, you know, probably better just in terms of avoiding injury. You know, he's in a lot of ways that pitchers and we've seen so many pitchers break down with the start of the season. They're they're not in mid season form. This isn't you know he hasn't been pitching for three months and gets called up to the to the big league. So he's in, in right in the middle of where he should be. So I think we're going to see plenty of triple digits before the year is out from Nate Pearson. So another player, uh, uh, top 10 overall prospect who we have not seen yet as we're recording, he was just called up yesterday and looking forward to de- his debut. And that is Joe Adele. And we yet to see him in the big leagues, uh, but looks like he should have an opportunity to play here. And what, what can we expect from him? Yeah. And they had said, e- even when they were making it clear, he wasn't going to make the opening day roster that w- when that call came, he was going to play. Uh, now we've heard that before, but, uh, you know, I, I think he's going to slot in. The Angels have, have, have struggled a little bit. Uh, their outfielders, you know, you know, Mike Trout is Mike Trout, obviously. Brian Goodwin's actually been good, uh, but Justin Upton hasn't really been hitting. Uh, Taylor Ward had been starting in right field. So there, there should be a place for him in the outfield slash DH rotation, especially if Shohei Otani is out. Uh, you know, can't swing the bat because as he's getting the forearm strain looked at there, there are more at bats to be had there. And I mean, this is a guy who we've known about the, the power forever. I mean, back from his high school days. And, you know, when I was writing this piece about what to expect from him, it's kind of funny to think back that there were concerns about his ability to hit. Yeah. There's some swing and miss, but he has shown an ability to adjust and adjust quickly. He's been pushed aggressively uh he made it to double a as a teenager to triple a at age 20 and so even though he's had injuries he's really a way ahead of any curve i think people thought there might be for him when he was a high schooler from kentucky uh, in the 2017 draft so there'll probably be an adjustment period it wouldn't surprise me if he comes out swinging the bat really well uh i was told that he you know the in alternate camp, he was looking really good. There were some questions about the defense, I guess. Uh, he's ironed them out from from what I've been told. Uh, I think some of that might just come. He's not actually played a ton of right field, played twice as many games in center as he has in right, and just hasn't had as much time to adjust, which, you know, is kind of funny because it's not like he ever was really going to play center field, but they wanted 
his athleticism to play, and that's going to play just fine in in right field. So I I think that he, you know, I, I could see a, a period where he comes out and is red hot, then big league pitchers adjust to him, and then he's going to have to adjust. Now, this is a short period of time in this season, so whether that happens this year, whether it happens next year, I don't know, but I think he's ready to contribute uh, right now, and outside of Luis Robert, uh, just the, the to have that kind of dynamic player come up to the big leagues right now, uh, it, you know, it, it's almost as exciting. How difficult do you, you guys think it is for these guys who are not playing at, at the level that they're used to to then be dropped right into the big leagues? Like in a case for Joe Adele, um, he only played 27 games at AAA last year, and <clears throat> his numbers took a – pretty significant dip when he went from double A AA to triple A went from slashing 308, 390, 553 at double A to dipping down to 264, 321 and 350 in uh, 27 games at triple A and hasn't had the benefit of, of getting more time at triple A for the past few months. And now suddenly he's going to be uh, put into a big league lineup. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be somewhat difficult. I mean, it's going to be more of an adjustment than normal. I mean, he did play in the fall league last year to try to make up some of those at-bats. You know, he only played about half a season last year because he was a little banged up. Um, you know, he has barely a 1,000 played appearances in the minor leagues. You know, it's we don't, we don't really get to see what's going on at alternative camp. I mean, theoretically, you're – I mean, from when I've talked to teams, you're giving guys – live at bats or maybe they're standing in during bullpens or, or whatever to see pitching, but it's not the same, uh, you know, I mean, again, you might be taking live BP, but the pitcher might be working on something in particular rather than trying to attack you like you would in a game. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is going to make it more difficult for some guys. And I, I think he's a prime example for the reasons you cited. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you should note, you know, that he often struggled. So you know, he made it up to double a in 2018, it was only 17 games, numbers suffered there, then came back uh, in 2019 and showed that he had no problem with with AA pitching with a 944 OPS in 43 games or before getting bumped up to AAA where he was okay. And then he was good in the fall league. He wasn't otherworldly, but he was he was good there. So I think that help, will help bridge the gap a, a little bit. But I, I think that's a valid point that you know, we'll just have to, sort of have to see if if maybe if he follows that pattern, then he... I don't say struggles, but doesn't produce quite as much right away uh, and then adjusts and starts putting up the numbers that we've come to expect from him in, you know, throughout his minor league career. Uh, speaking of expecting numbers from someone, another recent call up, Nick Madrigal. And I think the one thing that you, that everybody expects from him is that he's going to put the bat on the ball. He's not going to strike out. Um, he's only played four games so far, worn the collar in three of them. And then he had a four hit game. And the other one, he struck out two times already in, in uh, four games. How many times did he strike out in his in the minors? It was 3% last year, which was the best, the lowest percentage in about six or seven years. So, yeah, he's doing some quick math here. Uh, two divided by 17. What do we come up with there? Is that about 12%? Yeah, 12%. There you go. But, um, yeah, so he's swinging. It's, you know, I've said this a bunch. He, I mean, and I'm not basing this on his four major league games because it's obviously too small sample size. He's an extremely hard prospect for me to figure out just because he's, he's very unique. I mean, when he was at Oregon state, 
I thought his last two years he was there. I thought he was the best player in college baseball. Uh, I'm not saying best prospect, although he went fourth overall draft, but I mean, he was the best hitter and best player. I mean, Beavers went 56 and six as a soft when he was a sophomore and won the national title when he was a junior in, in 2018. Um, I think he, you know, he puts a bat on the ball as well as any prospect in baseball right now. I mean, it's, it's a short stroke, he's controlled approach, great hand eye coordination, all fields. But he doesn't make a lot of hard contact. Um, you know, he, he doesn't strike out and he doesn't drive the ball. It, it's a very controlled approach. And because he makes contact so easily, he doesn't walk. So, I, I mean, I, I think this is the type of guy who, who's going to probably hit around 300. Um, but how much slugging, how much on base are you getting with it? That's going to be the question. And again, I mean, I'm not reading anything in the four games. You know, he's got, you know, four hits and they're all singles and he's walked once. Um, that's not too far out of, I mean, he'd have more hits, but that's not too far out of line with his, you know, extra base production and walk production in the minors. So I, I think he's got an extremely high floor, but I struggle sometimes to, to determine what exactly is his, you know, is he going to be an all-star or is he going to be the guy who makes a lot of contact and plays good defense at second base and is a useful player, but, but, you know, not really a star. I, I, I really, really struggle with it. And one other top 100 prospect that was a recent call up and not really had a chance to see him play since he's been called up, but that's Dalton Varsho of the D backs. And, you know, just looking at their depth chart, uh, he's listed as their third catcher, their second left fielder, their second center fielder, and their third right fielder. And, uh, to this point, what would you guys say has had one at bat? Two plate, two plate appearances, and just wanted to find out uh, when we when we do see him play, what can we expect from Varsho? Yeah, I mean he, he he's an interesting guy because he he's super athletic. He runs really well, and and he's a catcher. Uh, but you know they like late last year they threw him out in center field in the minors, and he handled it just fine. Uh, he's seen time at all three outfield positions, you know, in summer camp and alternate camp. So I, I kind of thought they'd bring him up and kind of start moving him around and uh, getting him some at-bats. He, he pretty much hit wherever he's gone. A really good approach at the plate. It's, it's hit over power, but there is, there is some, some pop there, you know, more extra base than, than home runs. He can drive the ball to all fields, short stroke. He doesn't strike out a ton, draws walks. I mean, I, I think he's going to hit. The, the catching was the thing that there was some concern at, mostly because he doesn't have – great arm strength. It's okay. Uh, he does move well behind the plate. He's been working really hard on his, on his receiving and on, on developing a quicker release uh, so that he can get the ball to second base more quickly to help offset the fact that he doesn't have, you know, a gun for an arm back there. You know, whether he sticks back there long term, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I think he could, um, but he also could end up, uh, you know, in an outfield corner and being a really good outfielder. Uh, you know, you're not moving him out there and just hoping that he catches the ball, hits him. I think he could be an above average outfielder. He probably could even play third uh, if you wanted him to work on there. He's just a really, really good athlete. Uh, but more than anything is I, I feel very confident that he's going to hit in some capacity. Uh and again, then it'll come down to just how much extra base authority and run production he has to kind of slot him into the lineup. But if you told me that he kind of ended up being kind of a, a I don't know, prototypical number two type hitter just because of his his bat control and 
and his ability to control the strike zone. Um, I could see that. I'll be curious to see where he winds up playing because they, they, I've always liked Carson Kelly and they have Carson Kelly at catcher. So I don't think he winds up catching for him. I, I could see him making a really nice second baseman, but they have Kettle Marte and they've got all their outfielders are under contract at least through 2021 and, and beyond that. So it's, I, I'm with you. I really like him as a prospect. Um, I think he can play a number of positions. I'll just be very curious to see where he eventually works his way into that Arizona lineup for the long term. So those are four guys, uh, top 100 prospects who have been called up recently. Uh, some other rookies that we've seen uh, that we have had a chance to see quite a bit. You're working on a, a story now where we're ranking the rookies, uh, something about rookie power rankings. And, uh, you know, Kyle Lewis and uh, Lewis Robert at the top of that list for obvious reasons. Nate Pearson, his impressive debut uh, that we discussed earlier, has earned him a spot toward the top of that list. There are a handful of, uh, really a large handful of relievers, uh, rookie relievers who have had a chance to pitch and have, have done quite well and, and warranted consideration when we were putting together this list. Uh, Christian Javier, James Karinchak, Jordan Romano, Blake Taylor, Josh Stallmont, uh, several of these guys uh, performing quite well early on. Karinchak's the guy of that group who interests me the most. I mean, you know, again, it's early in the season. You know, it's easy to look spectacular in, in kind of small sample sizes. But but Karinchak, you know, because he had a he, he was hurt last year, he didn't get to pitch a whole lot. And so it kind of flew under the radar. But if you look in the entire history of the modern minor leagues, which goes back to 1963, of guys who pitched at least 30 innings in a season, he had the highest strikeout rate ever. He, you know, he averaged, it seems crazy, he averaged 20 strikeouts per nine innings. And obviously, you could have some drop third strikes, but, you know, generally you can't really max out more than 27 strikeouts per nine innings. So, I mean, he, you know, basically you know, strikes out, you know, roughly it seems like half the hitters he faced, you know, he, he came up at the end of the season with Cleveland last year. He struck out eight guys in, in five and a third innings this year, five innings, eight strikeouts. I mean, he, at this point in his career, he's pitched 10 and a third big league innings, giving up five hits, three walks, struck out 16 guys, giving up one earned run. And if you watch him pitch, I mean, it, it's a tough combination. I mean, he's got a a fastball that's 95, 99 with huge spin rates. So he gets all kinds of ride and arm side run up in the strike zone. And so if you're sitting there trying to catch up with that at the top of the strike zone, he's also got a hammer breaking ball. That's got, you know, the depth of a curveball and the, and the velocity of a mid eighties slider. So if you're sitting on the fastball, he throws that and, and, you know, you just look silly. You know, he's got a high arm slot. He's got a herky jerky deliveries. So there's a lot of deception, you know, I, I think this guy's a closer if he throws enough strikes. You know, his mechanics aren't great. They add deception. They take away from his control. But, I mean, this this is a, a definite, you know, high leverage potential reliever. What he's done so far, I don't think is a fluke. Yeah, he, he, he definitely interests me, and I think he has the chance to continue to pitch in high leverage innings for, for a team that's expected to compete. I think in a general sense, without necessarily talking about any individual guy too much at length um you know christian javier is interesting because he's you know he 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 got a, a start and he's looked really good and you look at the astros pitching staff and there's a ton of rookies but i think that speaks to a a larger uh, trend that i think we're going to see throughout this year 
there's going to be a need for a lot of arms combination of starters not being stretched out injuries positive covid tests whatever whatever is going to be forcing what would have been a, a normal major league pitching staff to the sidelines teams are going to have to be calling on a lot more arms i think you're going to see guys like jordan romano get the chance to sh- you know to to contribute more often uh you know tj antone of the reds uh even nick birdie who got the loss for the pirates yesterday but looked really really good and is still somehow uh, a, a rookie because of all the time he's missed these guys are going to get opportunities and more so than maybe they would have uh you know i think the the rush to the season has led to some pitchers not being quite ready to be completely ramped up and there's been some more injuries some minor some not so minor so i think you're going to continue to see some of these lesser known names come in and fill in spots in 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 the bullpen and having guys who can maybe handle multiple innings out of the bullpen fairly regularly will be you know a huge reason for for a team's success this year, I think. You know, Javier is going to be intriguing to me to watch too. You know, I do our Astros list, and you know, with the injuries the Astros have already had, I mean, he might wind up sticking in the rotation. He made his first big league start there night against Dustin May, who's on our top 100 list. And, and Javier outpitched him, gave up one run, struck out eight and five and two thirds innings. And he's another one of these guys that if you look at the just the radar gun numbers, you kind of wonder how he does it. But I mean, this is a guy who led the minors in ERA strikeout rate and opponent average last year, 174 ERA, 13 half strikeouts per nine, 130 opponent average. He's dominated everywhere he's gone in five pro seasons after signing for $10,000. And he, you know, he'll pitch 88 to 96. I mean, you'll see him in the, in the upper eighties, low nineties a lot, but like he hides the fastball so well, It, it seems like it's coming out of his chest. He can add, subtract velocity. He can, you know, he's got spin rate and good shape to his fastball. And guys just don't hit it even when he's thrown in the upper 80s. He's got a, a pair of pretty good breaking pitches. I think he went more curveball than slider in, in his first big league start. He's got a sinking changeup. You know, and again, you know, kind of like Karen Check. I mean, he's got a history of walking guys. I think in part because his stuff moves so much and guys don't see it. So sometimes they, they get fooled and, and then they wind up, you know, taking a pitch that looks good out of the hand. You know, by the time they pick it up, it's too late to swing and maybe it rides out of the zone. But he's, you know, he's been a guy who's been very hard to rank the last few years because there, there, there's not a big pedigree, you know, as an amateur. And it's not, you know, outstanding stuff in terms of velocity. But, you know, as we get more TrackMan and Rapsoda data and we, we see how pitches play, his stuff has played very, very well throughout his career. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. We will be back at you next week uh, at the same time. Thanks, everybody.